Release the Kraken. <laughs> Never heard the children released before. We usually just dismiss them, but maybe it's the same thing. It is a herd of them going out, but man, that's good to see every Sunday. A herd of kids going out, not because we don't want them in here, but because we got a lot of them here. That's the good thing. But what a great time to singing this morning and celebrating the Lord. And I love music. I wish that I could sing better than I do. Um, anyone under 40 years old doesn't realize that my name is co- coincides with a real famous singer. Uh, I figured that out, a f- well, I guess a few, few years ago, maybe 45 years ago, I went to the Apple store to get, a, I think, a phone looked at or something like that, and, and I walked up to the door, and, and the little lady, the little girl, uh, young girl that was at the door there, kind of the attendant checking people, and I was like, hey, I'm James Taylor, and she cracked a smile and kind of chuckled, chuckled, and I said, ah, you must like my music, and she just kind of looked at me with this, this look of like, music, what are you talking about? She's like 20, and at that moment, I felt old. And because all my life growing up, like, hey, I loved your music, sweet baby James. I've seen fire, I've seen rain, and all those things. Were you named after James Taylor? Like, no, I'm the third. I'm named after my dad, who was named after his dad, and they were alive before that guy was. And so, no relation whatsoever. Wish there was. Um, you know, bank account would be a little better if it was the other way around. But I love music, and I, I wish that I could sing uh, at all, other, rather than just making a joyful noise, but I'll do what I can. But I love singing. I love the idea of singing. I love worship. And I've mentioned this before, I think, in, in uh, preaching. It's just the idea and the act of worship fascinates me. That when we gather together in church or as the church and we lift our voices in song and as we sing and and it was what we do every single Sunday I just fascinated by that like I often wonder why do we do this why do we sing songs about blood and death and resurrection and, and all of the things that we sing about why is it that we as followers and believers of Jesus Christ would boldly and passionately sing Christ be magnified Christ be magnified in my life. Why would we sing holy and holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Why would we sing those words? Why as a church would we gather and call one another to come and to drink of the water and come to have our thirst quenched so we thirst no more? Why do we sing like that? We sing words like that. We sing songs like that. We join our voices together in part because God has created us to do so. That's the simple answer. Maybe a little bit different answer would be we do that. We lift our voices together because we understood and we have seen that the Lord is good. Therefore, we can't help but sing about it. That God is good, that he is gracious, that he is merciful. We opened our song set this morning singing John 3 16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life we know God to be good we know God to be gracious and therefore we can't help but sing about it we also lift our voices because what we have seen in God we sing to declare that God's way is higher and mightier than our way. We see that he's good. We see that he's gracious. We see that his way also is better than our way. And so we want to align our lives to his. You see, singing is our natural response to God's greatness. It goes back to how we're wired. That's our natural response to the goodness and the greatness of God. And so I love music. I love Christian music. And a song that I've recently become acquainted with was released, I believe, last year by a Christian band called the Newsboys. They've been around a long time. But they came out with a new song that's simply called Stan. I want you to listen to some of the lyrics in this song. It says, Who will I be when trouble comes calling for me? Will I live the way I believe when I'm backed up against the wall? What kind of heart do I have in my chest? Does it be for my Savior or just for my flesh? Well, will I do it in the moment that everything falls? Then he goes on to say, I'm going to stand in a world that's breaking. Stand for truth unchanging. I'm not ashamed. I've considered the cost. I'll stand right here at the foot of the cross and stand. They can call me a fool or stubborn for following you, for trusting without any proof. But I've seen you here through it all. 
so I'm going to stay in it. Music has a way of conveying our convictions about the Lord. You see, we sing as an expression of our desire to come alongside and to be in rhythm with the Lord's rhythm. We sing as an expression of our desire to see the rhythm of our lives united with the rhythm of God's character and his voice. You see, many people might call themselves Christian, but the Christian life that is not found in rhythm or, or beating to its own drumbeat is not a Christian life. But the Christian life is evident in the person who longs to dance to heaven's music. As we move in our, uh, in our passage here in Luke chapter 7, we're going to talk about dancing to heaven's music this morning. Because I believe what we see in the Bible, the reverberating message throughout the scripture calls sinners to approach their sin, to approach their lives from heaven's perspective, to dance to heaven's music. It calls for sinners to find their rhythm in Jesus because there is no better example of life than Jesus himself. And so we want to unite our lives to his. We want to take our rhythm and, and correspond it to the rhythm of Jesus. And we see a beautiful example of what that looks like in this man that we looked at last Sunday named John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. He's the greatest prophet that we see in Scripture. Now, this great prophet wasn't perfect. In fact, we looked at that last Sunday. We saw that in his life, he had his own moment of doubt. He had his own moment of, of wondering if what he saw and what he believed in Jesus was true. And so he sent two of his disciples, two of his followers, to, to go to Jesus and say, Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? The things that he saw in Jesus didn't seem to fit with what he understood about Jesus, what he had prophesied about Jesus. He understood and had said about Jesus that a mighty work of the Holy Spirit would work through humanity, through Jesus. And we see that. He also preached that Jesus would bring and usher in the judgment of God against those who had rejected God and rebelled against God and forsaken God. And yet that hadn't happened from what he could see. And so he begins to wonder about Jesus as he's languishing there in that prison at Machaerus. He's wondering because what he knew about Jesus is not what he's seen taking place in the world. The Romans are still occupying the land. Their pawns like Herod and Herodias are still living in luxury, still living in comfort, doing wicked things. The religious establishment in Jerusalem are still self-righteous as ever. John, who had spent his entire life literally from within the womb proclaiming the Messiah, is languishing and suffering in a prison while Jesus, the one he has prophesied about, is helping him not at all. And so John wondered about Jesus, but he quickly realigned his perspective to understand and to believe all that he had originally believed about Jesus. He synced himself with the Lord's rhythm of life. And what we see, and I believe I said this last Sunday, nowhere else in the Gospels after that moment that we looked at last Sunday do we see John questioning Jesus. Do we see John wondering about who Jesus is? No, his rhythm of life was in tune with the rhythm of Jesus Christ. And he never wavered. Oh, that we would live like that in our own lives. So we move to the next pericope here in Luke chapter 7. The author here, Luke, describes Jesus' conversation that he has with this crowd who was standing around as those disciples of John came and asked the question. Jesus here gives a defense of John, and he presents in this defense that John was a great prophet, and in that reminds us of the necessity of sinking our lives with the life of Jesus Christ. We learn from it the importance of dancing to heaven's music. If you got your Bible there, Luke chapter 7, let's read verses 24 through 35. Luke says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he asked, Why did you, or what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken by the wind? Well, then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Jesus again says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sing a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We've been saying for the last several weeks that here in Luke chapter 7, Luke has given us five different scenes picturing five different windows by which we can look at and see Jesus and see his ministry. And subsequently, we can also see how those there associated with those stories responded to Jesus. As we come to this fourth scene, what we discover from Jesus' conversation with his crowd is that sinners much approach their sin, approach their lives from heaven's perspective. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave us to discover or create our own path. Aren't you grateful today for that? That the Lord doesn't say to you, hey, I hope you meet it. The destination you need to be at at the end of your life is in heaven. Figure it out. See you on the other side. Aren't you grateful that's not that way? But instead, Jesus says, here's the destination, and here's your roadmap, and here's your driver. And he points himself, points to himself and says, I'm it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the Lord gives us a path. What we see from this is we cannot dance to the beat of our own drum, but rather we must dance to heaven's music. And so I want us to look at this passage this morning, and I want to point out three things as we do this. First of all, I want you to see that Luke presents uh, John as a shining example. Really, Jesus presents John as a shining example. Going back to what we looked at last Sunday, Jesus' conversation with John's disciples in verses 18 through 23 occurred obviously amongst or amidst a large crowd of people who were following Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, he had a crowd following him. And so undoubtedly, many of them overheard the conversation, overheard the question from John's disciples. Are you the Messiah or do we look for another? And so as a result... Some of the people probably were prepared to question the authenticity of John's faith. That's the way we are wired as human beings. When we, uh, we, when we uh, sense some sort of uh, chink in the, the armor or some sort of crack in the armor, we will go for that. Anytime we think that there's a little wavering in someone's faith, we will investigate that. And so surely these people were wondering, is John really a faithful man? And so this kind of response is typical. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, wanted to prevent this sort of conclusion. It's almost like Jesus is jealous and Jesus is protective over John. And so when John's disciples walk away and, and, and the crowd's left there wondering about the question that they had asked Jesus on behalf of John, Jesus, wanting to protect John and teach them something, says, hey, hey, what did you go out to see? He's talking about the authenticity and the realness of John and his faith in Jesus Christ. And so in doing so, he holds him up as this shining example of faithfulness and strength. And so he asks a series of questions to protect and to prove that John is a real faithful man. And he asks, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Now, that's a phrase and a question we probably wouldn't ask today, but it made complete sense to them. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What does that mean? What Jesus is asking here is, did you go out to see something significant or did you go out to see something insignificant? How insignificant is, is it to go out and to see grass moving in the wind? Happens all day. Every single day, grass is being blown by the wind. We don't ever pay attention to it, right? 
We don't ever look and say, good night, the grass is being moved by the wind today. We don't look up at the trees and say, wow, look at this. No, it happens every single day. And so what Jesus is saying here is, hey, you didn't go out to see something insignificant. You went out to see someone significant. He follows it up with a second question. What did you go out to see? Uh, Someone dressed in fine clothing? Did you go out to see a cultured and sophisticated preacher? Now, while the first question isn't answered specifically, the second one is. No. Jesus says fancy people aren't found in the desert. Fancy people aren't found out in the wilderness. You find fancy people wearing soft clothing in luxurious, easy places like the king's court. John the Baptist, on the other hand, is not that kind of man. John the Baptist is not a prosperity preacher in a tailored suit. He's a man who is rough and simple and yet powerful in his preaching. That's who John the Baptist is. Then Jesus asked the third question. Did you go out to see a prophet? Here he gives us an interesting twist in the answer. He says, yes, he is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Jesus, what do you mean he's more than a prophet? Is he a king? Is he some sort of lord over a piece of land? What do you mean he's more than a prophet? What Jesus is pointing out here is not only did John prophesy, but John is the fulfillment of prophecy. John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy in Malachi 3.1, saying that there would be a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah that would come before the Messiah. And John is the fulfillment of that. How do we know that? We know it because Gabriel, when he comes to Zechariah, John's father, before John is even conceived, and says, Elizabeth's going to be pregnant, you're going to have a son, and here's what he's going to do. He prophesies or, or pulls up the prophecy from Malachi. John is born. Eight days later, John is circumcised. Zechariah, because he didn't believe the angel there, could not speak during those nine months he's in the womb. And all of a sudden, when they're going to name him something else, his mouth is unleashed. And he steps up and he prophesies and says, his name shall be John. And then he goes into singing and he quotes Malachi 3.1. Jesus picks up on this and he says, John is not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet, and he, do, he too connects it back to Malachi in verse 27. Jesus also declared John here to be the greatest human to ever walk the earth. Now, it's an obvious comparison between John and the rest of humanity, Jesus being excluded. And so what we see is he was a great man of faith. He was faithful in all things. Yet... Jesus says something very interesting. The least in the kingdom is greater than John. You follow this and imagine being there in that crowd listening to Jesus. You're like, what do you mean? Uh, You're you're building John up to be this great man. And then all of a sudden you switch and you say, the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than him. What in the world does that mean, Jesus? It means it's one thing to be the heralder of a Messiah. It's one thing to be the herald of the king. It's another thing to be a citizen of the kingdom. We're kind of catching a glimpse of what this sort of looks like as we have been watching the monarchy change hands from Queen Elizabeth to now King Charles III over the last week or so. And in the coming weeks, we will see, more than likely, it'll be on TV, King Charles III coronated officially. And in that moment, I would suspect that a heralder will stand up and officially in this coronation declare King Charles, King of the United Kingdom. What a privilege that would be for that heralder. I was watching yesterday, the just for a brief few minutes between some football games, because on Saturday, that's what's important, right? And I was watching the, uh, I guess, the grandchildren's vigil, where the, the grandchildren of Queen Elizabeth came into the, the, the uh, hall there where she was laying in state. And, and so they went all through this ceremony and walked up there and went around and Prince William and Prince Harry on either sides of the casket and the other cousins are around. And I'm thinking, man, that is incredible that they would do all this ceremony and, and, this, and this honoring of the queen. And I also saw these men standing with these poles or some sort of thing and they had these headdresses on and, and, and one was up and he was banging it on the floor. And I'm thinking, what an honor that would be. To be the heralder of this moment, the director of this moment. And that's an honor for those individuals, but it's also, as Jesus says, an even greater honor just to be a part of the kingdom. 
That you're a member of the kingdom. That you're a citizen of the king. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And he's holding John the Baptist up as this shining example of a disciple who follows Christ. A man who united the rhythm of his life to the rhythm of God's character and his voice. And his example and Jesus' praise of it highlight for us that it is a choice that we ought to make. It's a choice that I would make in our own lives, which brings us to a second thing that I want to point out this morning. He's a shining example. Secondly, we see two opposing positions. Verse 29 and 30, John, or, or I should say Luke here, gives us some parenthetical records recording two opposite responses to Jesus. And then he goes on to offer some commentary on that. So look at verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. John tells us here, I should say Luke tells us here, that in response to John, that the common people... And the tax collectors, the sinners, right? Remember, Jesus has already been chastised for eating and drinking with tax collectors, with sinners. But Luke here is telling us that in response to the preaching, those people had responded in faith. They had responded in faith and repentance to John's preaching, to John's appeal, to John's call for them to step out of their sin and to move toward the coming Messiah. These common people agreed with Jesus' assessment of John here and his ministry. Yet on the other hand, the religious elite, Luke tells us, rejected God's purpose in John's ministry. They refused to receive John's baptism. What was John's baptism about? It was a call to confession and repentance. It was a call to acknowledge, I have sinned against God. There's something in me that's preventing me, that's separating me from holy God, and I need to rid myself of that so I can be acceptable to the Lord. That's what John's baptism was about. It was about confession and repentance of sin. Therefore... A person's willingness or unwillingness to confess and repent makes all the difference. So when the common people and outcasts heard John preach back in chapter 3, verse 7, when Jesus says, you brood of vipers, that cut, to, cut them to the core. They, were under, they understood that they were in danger because of their sin. Their hearts were broken and contrite because of their sin. And they hurried to confess and to repent. And all of that was symbolized in baptism as they symbolically demonstrated, I have died to sin, I have died to myself, and I'm being made alive to Jesus Christ. That is what baptism is all about. That doesn't save the person, doesn't redeem the person. When when we baptize in our baptistry here behind me, that person, whether it's a child or an adult, is not being saved in that moment, in that act. But symbolically, they're saying, I have come to the relations, I've come to the understanding of my sin. I've come into relationship with Jesus Christ, forsaking my sin, trusting in him, and I am being made new, or I have been made new, and I'm professing that through this act. Of baptism. Well, the Pharisees and lawyers refused to consider that John's message had anything to do with them. Uh, They prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. Uh, They prided themselves on the ability of themselves to sufficiently, and that's the key word there, sufficiently keep the law. Now, none of them would have said, I'm sinless. No one would have dared to say, I've never sinned in my life. I've never done anything needing confession, needing repentance, needing forgiveness. They would have never said that, but they would have said, I am sufficient in how I live out the law. In other words, my good outweighs my bad, and because of my trying and my sincerity, surely the Lord would look past my uh, faults and failures, and he would hold up my good side, and my good would outweigh my bad. It sounds a whole lot like every other religious system on the face of the earth. And yet we read the Bible and we see from the very beginning that's never been the case. And so how could men... 
religious leaders so close to the word of God completely miss its message. Have you ever thought about that? How could Pharisees and lawyers, as it says here, sometimes it'll say scribes, men who were the religious leaders of the nation close to the things of God, even the high priest himself offering that sacrifice on the day of atonement, how could they be so far off the mark when it came to their understanding and recognition of Jesus? Let me give you four things that could be possibilities for them and their possibilities for us as we can be amongst Amongst the things of God, around the things of God, among the people of God, and yet we miss God completely. Number one, familiarity. That's a hard word for me to say. There's a few words that my Arcanese just has trouble with, and that's one. Familiarity. Familiarity is a danger in our lives. It can create numbness and apathy and a lack of attention. Spiritually, uh, this happens when we get so comfortable with the things of God, we lose sight of God himself. Here's what it looks like. Familiarity will lead us to begin to say prayers, then pray prayers. It's going through the motions. Familiarity will lead us to begin to just sing songs rather than worship the Lord. How many times are you guilty on a Sunday or whenever we're worshiping together as a church, maybe even individually yourself, listening to godly gospel music, and you're just singing the words, you know the words, you're you're going through the motions, but really your heart's not there at all. How often does that happen? Familiarity looks like when you are listening to the Word of God preached or taught and and it does nothing in your life. There's no movement whatsoever for you to align your life with what the Word of God is saying to you. And so in all of this, we're just simply going through motions and offering lift service to the things of God and the person of God. It causes us to be satisfied with motions. As followers of Christ, here's what we need to strive for. We need to strive to be vigilant rather than familiar with the things of God. Vigilant in our faith. Intentional in our faith. Steadfast in our faith. Purposeful in our faith. Secondly, shallowness is a danger. You see, the enemy never wants to see people think deeply about their spiritual condition. On the flip side of that, the enemy would shudder any time a person really seriously began to consider the depravity of their life, the depths of their sin, the beauty of the grace of God. Anytime we begin to really hold these weighty things in tension and we begin to consider what they mean for our lives, that puts the enemy on high alert. But if we're just walking around in a shallow faith, he could give he doesn't care about it. Almost went somewhere I probably shouldn't say. I don't want to freak some of y'all out. I wasn't going to cuss. Promise. The enemy doesn't care about any of those things, right? He, he's okay with us being an inch deep and a mile wide. He never wants you to get deep in your faith. He never wants you to really consider the weight of your sinfulness and the beauty of Christ. He never, he never wants you to get where you're just feasting on the Word of God and you want to align your life with what the Word of God teaches. That's when he gets nervous. That's when he gets active in your life personally or in a church's life corporately. So as followers of Christ, we ought to strive to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, as Paul says, not allowing ourselves to settle for a shallow faith. Thirdly, self-righteousness. You see, shallow faith will inevitably lead to a self-righteous perspective of one's life. It leaves people sitting in their seat, hearing the preaching of the word, but never moved to do anything about it. That's why I wonder any time, personally for my life, how can I ever sit under the teaching of the Word of God and not lead me to want to be closer to the Lord? Lead me to want to walk holier alongside of the Lord? How many times in our Sunday morning services do we sit here under the preaching of the Word of God and we have a time of response? Do we just sing the song and we watch what others are doing and we turn and we go on with our life for the rest of the week? Is that self-righteousness? I'm not saying you've got to be down here at, the aisle, on the, on, down here at these steps as an altar and you're boohooing your eyes out. I'm not saying anything. You respond as the Spirit of God leads you. But if He leads you to deal with an area of your life and you say, I don't need to deal with that area of your life, what are you saying? I 
am righteous on my own. Lord, I don't need you to point that out in my life. I'm okay. I'm good. And the Pharisees heard John's preaching and said, that guy is a fool. I don't need that. That's for the common people. As followers of Christ, we need to always ask, how would Jesus have me respond to his word? There's a fourth aspect here that keeps us from responding, and that's sin's grip. Perhaps this is the greatest danger that we face when we allow sin to enter our lives and take hold of our lives. It begins to dull our hearts. It begins to create calluses in our lives. It begins to shut off our ears so that we no longer can hear the voice of God. And so many times we'll pray prayers like this, Lord, I just need you to speak to me. Here's what you need to know. God is always speaking to you. The problem is you can't hear him anymore. That's why Jesus prayed for the churches in Revelation that they'd have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. God is always speaking to Red Lane Baptist Church. The question is, is Red Lane Baptist Church listening to the voice of the Spirit? The reason we don't hear is because oftentimes our hearing is dulled as a result of sin. And so we need to remember that we are called to put sin to death in our lives. The religious leaders of John and Jesus' day suffered from these four things. Their spiritual shallowness and their self-righteousness prevented them from seeing their great need of forgiveness. And so they refused to recognize the message of the gospel. You see, it didn't matter which preacher was preaching. It didn't matter if it was John preaching. It didn't matter if it was Jesus preaching. It didn't matter if it was one of the disciples preaching. They didn't care. They dismissed the message. The kind of presentation being offered was of no consequence. Luke goes on to tell us what Jesus says. He says it didn't matter what it was because they were going to reject it. He talks about, hey, we sang you a, uh, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. When did you play a flute back then? You played at a wedding. That was a time of celebration. We sang a dirge for you. That's a morning song. That's at a funeral setting. And still there's no movement whatsoever. It didn't matter about the presentation. They were never going to allow their hearts to be moved. It didn't matter the preacher. John came as an ascetic, symbolizing consecration to God by his clothing and his diet and his insistence on repentance. John was a crazy looking guy. He was one of those guys that you would just want to go see and just see what he's going to do. I mean, he's dressed in camel hair. He's got a leather belt. He's eating chocolate covered crickets. I don't know. Locusts. He was an ascetic. Lived out in the wilderness. They looked at him and says, that man's a loony. He's preaching a message that's too hard. I mean, that's just nuts. He's surely got a demon. He's surely deranged in his mind. Jesus, on the other end of the spectrum, he's eating and drinking. He's hanging out with tax collectors. They've already criticized him for that, right? Who is this guy? He can't possibly be the Messiah. If he was the Messiah, he wouldn't know what kind of people he's, he's eating with. Jesus is eating and drinking. He comes in joy and inclusiveness. We like to talk about inclusiveness these days. Jesus is the ultimate inclusive person. He comes for all of us. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus didn't come for the religious elite only. He didn't come for the sinful only. He came for everybody and everyone in between. And they looked at him and says, he is a drunkard and a sinner. I don't need to be a part of that. Ultimately, these religious leaders refused to dance to heaven's music because they preferred to make their own. So nothing pleased their heart, and nothing pleases the heart that feels no sin. So there are two opposing positions when it comes to the gospel. That's what Luke is pointing out for us. There's no middle ground. The Bible tells us that broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life. Broad is the way and everyone seems to find that one. Narrow is the path that leads to life and few people find it, but thankfully there are a few who find it. That leads us to the third thing I want you to see this morning. Validation in the heart. Luke talks about, Jesus talks about this validation in the heart. Look at verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Remember, John the Baptist 
experience this momentary doubt when God's purpose in his life and the person of Jesus didn't really mesh too well. We too might have questions when life doesn't seem to be playing out the way we envisioned. That's why last Sunday we talked about how reality rarely meets our expectations. What we desire, what we want, what we plan for, what we expect rarely meets the reality that we're living in. And that's where John found himself. And yet when believers faith into Jesus and choose to dance to heaven's music rather than their own, we see that their conviction is validated. What in the world do I mean by that? It means that it may not make sense on paper. And it may not make sense to our friends, but if I continue to align the rhythm of my life to the rhythm of the Lord Jesus, knowing his character, knowing his goodness, knowing his purpose for my life, and I can't always make sense of it, yet it's validated. Little by little, the Lord confirms that I'm on the right path, that my rhythm of life is in sync with the Lord's rhythm and life. Today... We have a privilege that those back then didn't have for themselves. We have the privilege of reading the stories of the full canon of Scripture. When John the Baptist was there in Machaerus in that prison, and he's wondering about what he had preached about Jesus, what he was hearing about Jesus, what he had seen in Jesus, he couldn't make full sense of what we should be able to make full sense of because we know the story, and we have the Holy Spirit that teaches us the story. We got a different perspective, 2020 vision. And so let's be careful with our, with our uh, the way we talk about John, the way we criticize John. That's the word I was looking for. The way we critique his faith. We get to read the Bible. We get to see the stories played out in Scripture. We get to believe them. And then we get to witness how what we've read in Scripture has a tendency to play itself out in our own lives. And so we see our moments of doubt like John had. And we see how the Word of God speaks to that and encourages us. We see how others uh, affirm us and help us. And all of this comes full circle for us. So there's a validation to our commitment to walking in faith with the Lord. We get to read stories like Acts chapter 9, when Saul, who's later Paul, comes to faith in Jesus. He's this great persecutor of the church. He's this man who's a radical who wants to stomp out what we would call Christianity today, this movement back then, this sect, this, this uh, uh, apostasy from their perspective. He wants to put it, stamp it out, stomp it out, get rid of it. He's on his way to Damascus to, at best, put Christians in jail, at worst, stone them like they did earlier with Stephen, and Jesus meets him on the road. Here's a man that had no eyes through faith to see the Lord Jesus for who he is. And Jesus encountered him and gave him not only ears that could hear, but eyes that could see and believe. And we look at that and we say, man, I don't know how so-and-so could ever come into relationship with Jesus. They're so antagonistic to the gospel. And yet Paul is probably one of the more, if not most, antagonistic people we can read in all of Scripture to the gospel. And he came to faith. We see all of that and we understand that our faith is validated. There's a validation in our hearts. We read of John the Baptist. And how he was misunderstood and persecuted. And then we look at our own struggles as a Christian. And just as the Lord sustained John, we understand that he too will sustain us. And we feel that power in us, leading us and guiding us. Even when we feel defeated, we feel him lifting us up off the ground. So how do we feel this validation? How do we get this sense of validation? Simple. We get it from reading God's word. As you read your Bible, as you meditate upon the Bible, as you listen to the Bible expounded, taught, preached, God uses that to form your convictions about the Lord and His Word. <laughs> That's the reason we're so big on encouraging you to read your Bible on a daily basis. That's why we encourage you to read through the Bible systematically, annually. We do a Bible reading every single year. We've done it for the last several years. We do that because we understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. If I don't know the Word of God, 
How dare I ever think that I'm ever going to walk in faith? No, I'm going to run for the hills every time there's something, every time there's a little boogeyman behind the corner. But if I'm reading the Bible and I see that God is bigger than any circumstance I may face and that he is the one who's already been there and done that and provided what's needed, I can trust him through that scenario. Just as he's been faithful in all the other things we've read in Scripture, he will be faithful in my life as a church. We've experienced this on just a simple thing as renovating our building. Lord birthed us in our hearts several years ago. We've decided we're going to move on this. We did all the planning, all the preparation. We go to begin to, to break ground and build a building so that we can renovate this space. And what happens in 2020? The world shuts down in March. I called some of my pastor buddies and said, hey, man, we are literally a month away from, from, we just did our ceremonial breaking of ground. We're literally about to do this thing. What do you think we should do? And everyone I talked to said, I would not do it. And I'm calling men that I respect, men that have built millions of dollars worth of buildings in the churches they've led, and every one of them were saying, I would not do it. You just don't know enough about the economy. And I was talking with the elders, and we're praying through this thing, and I, in my heart, I just, and the elders as well, all of them, we just had this conviction. We didn't birth this in our hearts. The Lord did. And if I believe the Bible correctly, he knew COVID was coming. Which means he's already on the other side of this pandemic thing. And so we waited two months, just in prudence. And we came back to you as a church and we said, the Lord birthed us in our heart. We believe God's leading us to do this. We believe God will provide. And we stepped out in faith. And what did he do? He provided. Now, did we pay a whole lot more than we would have in 2019? Yeah. But we went ahead and built. And God has provided and continues to provide. How do we know that it's because God in his word has shown us over and over and over again he is faithful the spirit of God through the word of God validates God's work as we choose to dance to heaven's music rather than our own and this divine wisdom in this divine wisdom is proved right which becomes a powerful testimony to a watching world John united the rhythm of his life with God's rhythm. You know, he could have created his own music. John could have danced to the beat of his own drum. He could have been just like those religious elites in Jerusalem. Many people do just that. In fact, everyone does whatever they want to do. If you, if you understand the Bible correctly and what it says about who we are as sinful human beings, we all are born sinful. We're all born depraved. We all bounce and beat to the beat of our own drum. We all do exactly what we want to do. Thankfully, God allows us to do that. And in his providence and in his grace, he puts people around us to share the gospel with us so that in our misery as we're trying to work out of our brokenness, we hear the gospel with ears that can hear and a heart that can receive, and we trust Jesus as Lord. We begin to understand, man, I cannot do this. I just can't do it. I've never been what I guess the world would call a hellion. Never murdered anybody. I've never taken an ounce of drugs. I've never been drunk in my life. Uh, never you know, done all the things that we would say are super, super worldly. And yet I remember what it was like as a teenager trying to make my religion work and the misery that that felt like. I remember what I felt like in, when I was 18 years old. See, the day I gave my life to Jesus, I was a freshman at the University of Arkansas. I was a small group leader for seventh grade boys in my home church. I had been a leader in my student ministry all through high school. I graduated from a Christian school. I knew the gospel. Up here. I just hadn't worked it down to here yet. Man, I really tried. I really, really tried. But one Thursday morning, because I read the Bible every single day. I read the Bible twice, morning and night before I'd go to bed. I don't even do that today. Because I can't stay up past 8 o'clock. <laughs> Nine, really. But I read that morning, 1 John chapter 5, he who has the Son... Not S-U-N, but S-O-N, has life. He who does not have the Son doesn't have life. And I knew it, but I, for the first time, really knew it that day. That all I had was a religious experience and no life to show for it. 
That weighed on me all morning long. That was a Thursday, so I wasn't in class that day. I went that semester, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I worked full days at a plumbing and electrical warehouse on Tuesdays and Thursdays, afternoons on the other days. And I remember, man, just under deep conviction in my heart over my sinfulness all morning long. And finally, at about 12.50, I just said, man, I, I got to get, I got to pray. And I found a restroom in our showroom away from all my co-workers away from uh, uh, people shopping there, business guys or plumbers, and I just got down on my knees in that bathroom and I said, Lord Jesus, I'm religious. I've tried to make that work, but I don't have any life. I want life. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you become the Lord and Savior of my life? I remember standing up after I prayed a prayer. I remember my watch dinging. It was 1 o'clock. And I'm one of those guys that kind of remembers spatial things. And I remember all of that. But what I remember the most is the guilt and the things that I had carried and fought for so long no longer were there. Now, has there been some ups and downs in my walk with Jesus over the last 27 years or whatever that is? You better believe it. There's been moments where my life has gotten out of the rhythm of Jesus. And I didn't lose my salvation because I'm, once I'm in, because I didn't do anything to get in it, he called me. But I can get out of step with him from time to time. I, you know, I say this all the time. I can walk at a guilty distance. But what the Lord does is he, in his good fatherly action toward me as a son, disciplines me so that I get back in line. Why? Because it's for my good. And as I walk in rhythm with him, my life is not easy because God's never promised us easy life. But my life is sweet, and my life is purposeful, and my life is whole, and my life is good, and hopefully a benefit to others. Is that the work of me? No, it's the work of God in me. And John is a testimony of that. John is a shining example of that. And so what we see in this passage is there was John who faithed into Jesus, who believed Jesus. There were those common people and those tax collectors who saw Jesus and they heard John preach and they faithed into the gospel. And then there were those who says, I don't need that and I don't want that. I'm good on my own. And they were never good on their own. This morning as we see this passage and as we hear it taught to us, it calls us, to a response. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many find it. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And few find it. Why don't they find it? They're not listening. Jesus is always speaking and always calling. They choose not to hear. I think this passage comes at a very pivotal time for us as a church. Next Sunday, our summit conference begins. We've been talking about it being a spiritual emphasis week. Why do we say that? It's because I don't think we can say, we're having revival next week. We don't know revival's coming. It depends on our response to Christ and his Holy Spirit. But we can say, we're going to do everything we possibly can as a church to put ourselves under the teaching of the word of God and amongst the movement of God's spirit in his people. And hopefully, prayerfully, revival will happen. That's what we're hoping for next week. And so why not this Sunday, the Sunday before we even kick it off, allow God's word to so speak to our hearts today that we say, this is an area of my life that's not right and I want to give it to Jesus. Or, if you're where I was many, many years ago, I'm religious, or maybe I'm not religious at all. I just today understand I am not in relationship with the Jesus you're talking about. And I understand I need to be. And today you're saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord and Savior of my life. That's our responses today. So we're going to sing in just a moment. If you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come. I don't save you. I don't touch you on the head and the Holy Spirit comes in your body. It's not anything like that. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to go with one of our um, folks, and they're going to talk with you through the gospel and, and help you, navigate you through that so that you, through faith, put your faith in Jesus Christ.
Maybe this morning you need to come and just pray. Maybe you need to bring someone else with you. Maybe you need to have someone pray with you or for you. You come as well. But let's prepare our hearts for what the Lord has for us, even next week in the summer conference. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for the example of John the Baptist. He truly is a shining example of us, before us. I'm thankful for Jesus' interaction with him. I'm thankful how Jesus was gracious and kind, and he didn't rebuke John. He just encouraged him. I'm grateful he was jealous for John's testimony and used as an opportunity to speak to those who were there listening, who had overheard what was taking place, and to help them understand not only that John was a faithful man, but there is a crisis of decision for each one of us, whether we will choose to walk with Christ or whether we will reject, as those Pharisees did over and over again. And so this morning it speaks to us. The same question is on the table. Will we follow Jesus or will we choose not to? Even as a follower of Jesus, we know there's times we can get out of step. Our rhythm can get off. So, Father, this morning, are we walking at a guilty distance? Are there things that we need to say, Lord, this is not right. This is wrong. This is not in, maybe it's good. Maybe it's sinful. But, Lord, it's just... I need to forsake these things to walk with Jesus more closely and cleanly. I pray this morning that we will do some preparatory work, even for what we look forward to next week in the Summit Conference. So would you lead our time as we sing in just a moment, as we respond in faith, respond in repentance, respond in confession and faith. Speak to your church. Better yet, give us ears that hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our- We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.